hope you don't mind that I stole one of the tables and one of the stools from the foyer if you were looking for it. It's up here. Um, I had an opportunity a few years ago after the earthquake in Haiti um, to be in Haiti when a truckload of Operation Christmas Child boxes showed up. And it is amazing to see these kids. And the way that they do the program, the way that they present the kids with the boxes and talk about Jesus as a gift and uh, eternal life as a gift that he offers us. And the boxes are just a, a token. They're just a, they represent the, the real gift, which is Jesus. And it's, um, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's a, 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 what a great ministry. So thank you to all of you who brought a box Maybe you packed one, maybe you packed several. Um, man, you, you don't know and I don't know the kind of impact that that's going to have in eternity. Amen? Well, um, my voice is a little interesting this morning, so I thought maybe I should just be sitting down for this whole thing. Um, last week we were reading about Jonah, and we've been... Uh, we're taking the four weeks bef- be- before Christmas to talk about kids' stories, things that we hear about in children's ministry if you grew up in the church, but we don't really talk about very much as adults. So last week was Jonah, and we talked about the fish. Sometimes I call it a whale. Who cares? But it's a big, giant fish. Um, and then this morning, we're going to be talking about Noah and the ark and the flood, a, a children's ministry classic, because it's got all those animals, Right? You just love all those animals. All right. Well, this morning, I want to challenge you because if the last time you heard the story of Noah and the ark was before you were able to vote, (laughs) or for those of you who still aren't able to vote, maybe before you were potty trained or something, I'm not sure. What happens between potty training and voting? Forgive me. Um... Listen with fresh ears, because we talk about this with kids because it's fun. It's fun to, to have the, the ark and the boat with the water and the animals, and you know, you've got an ark with like the giraffe's head sticking out the top, and that's cute. It is cute. Um, but to, to read this with, uh, with adult ears and to have a, an adult perspective on it, it is important for us. So uh, just listen with fresh ears. And uh, a grown-up look at Noah and the flood needs to start with a discussion about what kind of literature we're looking at. Aren't you glad you came this morning? We're going to talk about the kind of literature that is in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, because we don't talk to kids about that, because kids don't care about what kind of literature it is. They just want to know what color an elephant is. Is it gray or is it purple? Is it black? I'm not sure what to do with this elephant. But for us, when we read the Bible, we have to consider what kind of literature it is. You just absolutely have to. Uh, because if it's poetry, if it's a song, if it's a letter, if it's a, if it's a, a biography, you're going to read all those things differently. Just like if you turn on the TV and, it's, uh, and, and the TV is the news, you're going to watch the news differently than you're going to watch The Matrix. I hope. So we have to consider what it is that we're reading, the kind of literature. So I want to show you something. 
with the flood story. Um, Open your Bibles, please, or turn them on, however you do that, and find Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It's on page 5 if you're using the Red Bibles, so it's very early on. If you can find the table of contents, just keep going a few pages, and you'll find Genesis chapter 6, down to verse 9. Verse 9 and 10 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, that's the beginning of the flood story. Let's now turn over to chapter 9 and go down to verse 18 and 19. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, and from the, these, the people of the, the whole earth were dispersed. Okay, they sound the same, right? Do they sound the same to you? Please tell me they do, because they're parallel, so they should sound the same. The very, the very beginning of the story talks about Noah and his sons. The very end of the story talks about Noah and his sons. They're parallel. And guess what? Everything in between is parallel also. It's called chiastic parallelism. Yeah? You don't have to write it down. I put it in your bulletin. But this is what it looks like. At the very beginning of the story, you've got Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this is a... I, I summarized all of the parallels. There's more than this. But at the very beginning and then at the very end... And then the second thing, really the second element of the story is paralleled to the second to the last element of the story. And it goes like that all the way through the story until you get to the, the structural climax of the story, which is that God remembered Noah in chapter 8, verse 1. Who cares? You should care. And one of the reasons why I'm showing you this, there's a couple of reasons, but one is that the author wrote this story like this on purpose. Amen? God's got a plan, and he likes to communicate with us, and he likes to communicate with us through us. So that's what we have in the Bible, is that God has revealed himself to us through people who've been inspired by him to write about him. Amen? And that's a beautiful thing. So we've got an author who's writing a story about the flood, and he chose to write it like this. Now, if you were an ancient reader, you would have noticed this fairly quickly. But we're not ancient readers, and so someone like me has to point it out to you. One of the things we have to understand is that the point of structuring a story like this is to highlight the climax that God remembered Noah. That's what's being highlighted. In fact, in this story, the ark 
is not really highlighted, and the animals aren't really highlighted at all. The real highlight is that God remembered Noah. So you're highlighting the climax, you're not hiding it. And you know what else the biblical writer is not hiding in this story? He's not hiding the fact that it's poetry. This is poetry. We have to read this story like it's poetry, because guess what? It is. It's poetry. The story is not a sterilized collection of facts. The ancient world had no use for a documentary. They didn't make those. It's not a documentary. It's a poem. And so we have to understand that there are some poetic and figurative things happening in the story. But what I want to focus on is what the story focuses on, which is the point of the story. What, what are we finding out about God? Why is it in the Bible? Why does it matter to us? Because everything else that's happening in the story is trying to get us to understand the point. So the biblical writer is writing about a flood. He structures it with a climax. He's pointing to a particular thing, and he's letting us know that everything else that's going on in the story is there to tell you about that one thing in particular. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're not going to spend uh, much time at all talking about any of the poetic elements or things like that because they all serve the point of the story. Amen? Well, let's get into it. The story's pretty long. We're not going to read the whole thing like last week. Um, But we're going to highlight some key parts of the story and then talk about what all of that means. Genesis 6 is very early in the Bible, okay? Sin happened in chapter 3, Genesis 3. So you've got just a couple chapters between sin coming into the world and, and this account of the flood. Mankind became increasingly evil, so much so that in Genesis 6-5, which is part of the prologue to the, the actual flood story, the Bible says this in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what, again, what this means is that people were really, really bad. Uh, Unprecedented in their badness. And because of that, because of man's wickedness, Verse 6 says, the Lord regretted that he made man. And so God decided to blot out man and animals from the face of the land. Has that verse ever bothered you? Does it help to understand that it's poetry? It should. And the way that it's written is simply meant to drive home the point that the flood that's coming is an expression of God's wrath. Why talk about how bad people are? Because that's, that's what caused the flood, God's wrath and the flood. I think that's one of the blanks in your outline. The Bible's clear, even going back to the very first command ever given to people in the Garden of Eden, the punishment for sin is death. Amen? It's always been that way. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 23, 
said, for the wages of sin is death. He wasn't making that up. It's always been like that. We see that throughout the Bible, and we see it again here in Genesis 6, that the wickedness of man made God regret that he made man and resolved to blot them out from the face of the planet. God was preparing to punish a universal evil with a universal death. But then there was Noah. So let's talk about Noah. In verse 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless and he walked with God. So God was explaining to Noah why he was so mad at mankind, and a lot of it has to do with violence, human violence. And God decided to give Noah an out. We're still in chapter 6. This is verse 14. He said, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And now verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. So God told Noah to build a giant ark and then collect pairs of every animal to go into the ark because a flood's coming that's going to kill everyone and everything that's not on the ark. Then, Genesis 7-5 says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded. All that the Lord had commanded. That's a lot of stuff. So it, it happens fairly quickly in the story, but build, build a giant ark? Now, so you understand, the size of the ark in the Bible is bigger than any known wooden ship ever. Like in, in modern times or in ancient times, of the wooden ships that we know about and have record of their size that actually f- were out in the seas, the ark is a lot bigger than any of those. It's huge. So we're just getting a size of the, the significance of what's going on here. Build a giant ark. Um, with all of the townspeople? No. Just get it done. The giantest ark ever. That's hard to do. Not only that, but go around and collect all of the animals that are living. I mean, two of every kind, a male and a female, with some additional ones of the, of the, the, the clean versus the unclean animals. But that's a lot of animals. That's a big ark. And he's almost 600 years old. He's past his prime. The real point of all of this and all of the, how big this is, the real issue here that we should, that we should find amazing is the trust that it took for Noah to say, yes, Lord. And that's the part that God honored. The size and the scope of the task is really meant to show you that salvation is no small thing. The way that I put it in your notes 
is salvation isn't easy. We have to be careful because salvation isn't something that you can earn. It is not something that you, if you work hard enough for, you can get it, or if you do enough good things, you can be saved. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that being saved from God's wrath against sin is a gift. It's not the result of works, lest no man can boast. It is not something that you can earn. It is something that is offered. But in the story, in the flood, we can see that there is a cost. Then, one day, it started to rain. Actually, Genesis 7.11 says, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the land 40 days and 40 nights. Get a sense of the poetry here, right? You're hearing it, right? Are you hearing the poetry? Please tell me you're hearing the poetry. The windows of heaven. Okay. They were on the ark for a really long time. On a giant boat, on the water, with all those animals. And then you get, in chapter 8, the, the climax of the story. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Noah had believed God and trusted him when God told him to do something wild. And God remembered Noah after the flood. The waters abated and Noah sent out a couple birds to see if they could find dry land. And by the time the ark was on dry land, it had been over a year on the ark. And the first thing Noah did once getting to land was he offered a sacrifice to the Lord. This pleased God, and so he said, and this is Genesis 8:21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. Genesis 9, 12 to 15 says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Then Noah and his family went out and basically started over again. And that is the biblical flood story. It's important for us to understand that this story was about a real event. The flood was real. It's presented as real in the Bible, which is enough for me. But we also know that there are, in addition to the biblical story, there are three other ancient stories from that same area and that same time that tell a story about how the gods got mad and sent a flood, but a hero built an ark and loaded it full of people and his animals and, and the animals to save them. 
That's four stories from the ancient Near East that talk about a flood because of God's wrath and an ark. And even the, for example, the Sumerian story even has the, the hero whose name I think is Utnapishti, if I'm getting it right, sent out birds to go see if there's land. And the, the parallels of those stories are really, really similar. It's almost like the flood actually happened. And then people, when they went to scatter out throughout the land, the Bible tells us that they became evil very quickly again. And after, after the Tower of Babel, which is like one chapter away from this, they scattered into different groups. And those different groups looked back at that same event, that thing that they had in common, that they had experienced. But why did they write it down? They wrote different things about it. But why write it down? In the ancient world, there was no need to write a history. If you were writing something down and you would say, here, I, I, I just wrote this down. Here you go. And someone's going, you just wrote, there was a flood. Duh, we, were all, we know there was a flood. Why would you write that down? Why would anyone write that down? They weren't writing it down in order to describe the flood. All of these cultures, including the biblical story, were written down to interpret the flood, to tell you why the flood happened and why it was important. In the Sumerian story, for example, the lesson from the flood is that the gods learned something really important after flooding the whole earth. They learned that they need people. And if they had truly killed everyone, all of their worship would have gone away and they, they would have ceased to exist. So the gods learned how important people are in the flood. That is not the lesson that the Bible teaches us about, about the flood. In the biblical story, we see two things really clearly. We see God's wrath against sin, and we see God's mercy, especially for those who follow him. God's wrath is an overwhelming and universal wrath. It's illustrated by an overwhelming and universal flood. When we think about, as adults, when we think about the flood and the ark and the animals, we shouldn't really focus on, don't focus on the animals. Part of what the Bible is telling us is that God hates sin. If you're going to focus on something, focus on the dead bodies floating around the ark. That is part of the significance of this story is that God truly, truly, deeply, deeply hates sin. Hates it passionately. The flip side to that is that God shows mercy. As much as he hates sin, God also shows mercy, particularly, particularly for those who follow him. Universally, we see God's mercy in his promise to never again wipe, wipe out everyone on the earth. But the big push from the story, that climax in the story, is that after God's wrath had been poured out, he remembered Noah. And he made the floodwaters subside and he let Noah come back and start over again. Noah was given new life because of his faith, because he trusted God. That is the story. That is the story. From very early on, 
the most ancient of ancient human history stories that we have, the Bible tells us this story is about God saving the faithful, his wrath from his wrath. Today, in some ways, things are still like Genesis 6. As I mentioned, the Bible says that really quickly, after people came back, things were bad again. All sorts of bad. The world today is still full of evil. Amen? Full of evil. Jesus said that, that when the Son of Man comes again, it will be like the days of Noah, when people were just horrifically bad. The world is, is, is like that. The world is full of evil. And God still hates evil. He still hates sin. But God also still shows mercy for those who follow him. Today, the full weight of God's mercy isn't found in an ark. Today, the full weight of God's mercy is found in Jesus Christ. He is the ark. He's the, he is the way to be saved from the wrath that we, are, that we deserve because we're evil, because we do bad things. Jesus himself said, and this is John 3, 36, said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The story going all the way back is that God hates sin, but we're sinful. How do we resolve that? Well, by, by following God. And the Bible says that Noah walked with God. In walking with God, Noah found favor. He found grace in God's eyes. And God saved him. And the same happens with us today. If we walk with God through Jesus, we find salvation from God's wrath. Now, the promise is that we, we, that God won't wipe out all, all flesh from the earth. I'm glad for that. I'm pretty glad for that. Are you glad for that? God's not going to wipe out all flesh, but his wrath is still there. It's still real. And when we die, if we die in God's wrath without having good fellowship with him through Jesus, we remain forever in his wrath. God's promise to never wipe out all, all life from the earth is a promise for this earth while we live here. But when we die, you will experience either the full grace of God through Jesus or the full wrath of God in hell. The Bible says that Jesus offers us forgiveness and salvation because, because he went up on the cross and because on the cross, God laid out his wrath on Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus became sin, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
when we think about God's wrath, when we think about evil, when we think about God's grace and his mercy, we don't have to look all the way back at the ark. We can look right here at the cross. And we see on the cross God's wrath poured out. When we think about Jesus on the cross, when we think about the nails, when we think about the thorns, when we think about his death, that is God's wrath. That's not God being mad at Jesus. That's God being mad at sin. This morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And for me, it's important to recognize when we take the Lord's Supper that on the cross, Jesus did what what Noah could not have, have fully done. Noah gives us a picture of God saving us from his wrath. But Jesus on the cross actually saves us from God's wrath. He suffered the penalty for God's wrath and satisfied that wrath so that he could offer us forgiveness so that we don't have to live in God's wrath. The Lord's Supper is a careful observation. So if you're a believer this morning, before we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to take a moment, a few moments, and understand that the Bible says that we're to do this regularly, but when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are remembering the price that was paid so that you could have forgiveness. The ark, the flood, the animals, it shows us how much God hates sin. The same thing is found on the cross. God shows us how much he hates sin. But in the, in the body, the broken body and the blood of Jesus, we not only see how much God hates our sin, but we see how much Jesus loves us. And as great as that wrath is, his love is even greater because it can overcome his wrath. So when we take the elements, the Bible says that if you take it with an, in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink condemnation on yourself. So take a couple minutes and think about and make sure that you don't have any sin on your heart. Make sure that you're right with God. Make sure that when you, when you take that cup, that you're not taking it in an unworthy manner. It Maybe there's a sin you need to confess. Maybe there's a person you need to apologize to. Maybe there's a, a selfishness that you need to get rid of. Maybe there's hurt that you need to give back to Jesus. Maybe there's a burden that you can't bear. Before we take this, make sure that your heart is locked in with God and that you hate evil as much as he does. If you're not a believer, don't take this with us. 
But if you're not a believer, I need you to understand this, that Jesus built an ark for you, that you have sinned, we all have, and your sin brings out God's wrath. Not in its fullness here, but when you die, you will experience God's full wrath unless you get on the boat, and the boat's Jesus. If you give your life to Jesus, what's interesting is you walk away from your previous life, and you get on the boat, and you get a new life. Just like Noah, after the flood, came off of the boat and had to start over again. The Bible promises that we will be a new creation in Jesus. But you have to leave everything behind. But it's worth it. It's worth it. So take a, take a minute. I'm going to ask the ushers to come up, and we're going to get the elements